Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today, Pietro Biroli, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Zurich, is joining our episode. Pietro, thank you very much for your time and your participation in the podcast. We are very happy to have you here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for, for calling me on. Pietro, you're an applied micro and health economist and you use social science genomics to explore the importance of genetics, family investment, and early childhood interventions in explaining health and economic inequality. For the listeners who aren't specialized in health economics, could you tell us what social science genomics is? Yes, I'd be happy to. It's actually a harder question than, uh, than it should be. I actually consulted with a few people who do this uh, to get an understanding of how to say it briefly. But I mean, I guess that the short of it is that social science genomics is kind of a field of in, in a, the intersection between social sciences and genomic sciences. And it tries to combine expertise in the terms of like data, theories and methods from genomics and social sciences together in order to you know, help the understanding of both, uh, uh, of both groups. And in reality, what happens is that I think that as of now, the social science genomics is, uh, in my personal experience at least, is basically a lot of people from the social sciences, so economists, sociologists, uh, or psychologists, who started getting interested in uh, genetics and genomics and started learning their tools and their methods and applying them to answer the questions that are more typical of social sciences like inequality and life cycle evolution of uh, skills, wages, and, and whatnot. But of course, we hope that then our expertise in social science can also kind of trickle into genomics and uh, cross-fertilize the two fields. Fantastic. I think today we're going to get a taste of that, because today we're discussing a current working paper by you and your co-author Laura Zwissig, and the paper is called Moral Hazard Heterogeneity, Genes and Health Insurance Influence Smoking After a Health Shock. In this paper, you show that individual behavior is influenced not only by environmental constraints, but also by genetic makeup. And this might actually have substantial implications for the fairness and effectiveness of health policies. So for everyone who hasn't read the paper, could you describe what you did in that research project? Sure. Yeah. So the general idea of the research project is that we wanted to understand how we can use uh, genes and genetic variants to understand individual level heterogeneity in certain economic parameters or in certain economic ideas that have been common in the economics literature. And specifically in this paper, what we do is that we try to understand some form of elasticity to a reaction to a negative health shock. And we want to especially understand whether moral hazard, whether there is a heterogeneity in moral hazard. So if people are different in their level or their extent of moral hazard and how they respond to negative health shock, whether they are covered by health insurance or not covered by health insurance. So basically what we see is that we focus on smoking behavior. That's our main outcome. And we see whether people change their smoking behavior after cardiovascular health shock. So think about a stroke or a heart attack, basically. And we want to see whether this response after the heart attack is different, depending whether you're covered by health insurance or not covered by health insurance. We leverage the fact that in the US, after the age of 65, you get uh, health insurance coverage by Medicare. And basically what we do is that we compare people who get a heart attack or a cardiovascular health shock 
just before the age of 65, so from 60 to 65, or after the age of 65, so 65 to 70. And we see what we find actually, and that's actually very consistent with the literature, that's where we started from, is that people who are covered by health insurance respond less in terms of reduce less their smoking behavior if they're covered, basically. So what we add to the literature is that we try to see whether this differential response to the health shock, so differentially depending on whether you're covered or not covered by health insurance, actually changes depending on your genetic predisposition to smoking. And what we find indeed is that the people who have a low genetic predisposition to smoke are the ones who are more responsive to this. So are the ones who stop smoking at a higher rate if they're not covered by health insurance, but actually they don't stop much more than the average person once they get coverage. So basically the ones who have a low genetic predisposition to smoking seem to be the one who are more elastic in their response and seem to be the one who show a greater degree of moral hazard. So you focused on smoking as the decision of interest. Did you also consider other decisions or what was the reason for going for smoking? Yeah, so basically we really looked at the literature and uh, there were other papers that looked at, the, at a similar idea. So they, they also looked at the difference before and after the age of 65 because of Medicare. And what they have done is that they were looking at smoking. So we kind of took the main outcome, the smoking outcome, because the literature has focused on that. And we kind of wanted to first replicate the results and secondly, to see if there was this uh, level of heterogeneity in, in moral hazard and in the response to the health shock. And after that, of course, we try to extend our results and thinking about maybe there are other type of health behaviors that respond to this. And, you know, usually the main health behaviors that I can think of are uh, smoking, drinking, exercise, and maybe sleep or how much you sleep. Those tend to be the, the, the health behaviors that a lot of health economists focus on. So we tried to look into drinking and exercise, which were the two variables that were better measured. It, well, they were measured at all in our sample, which is a US sample of uh, the adult population, the health and retirement study. So basically what we did is that we tried to look into uh, drinking and exercise, but we found a lot more noise in the data. So we find suggestive evidence that maybe the results are similar in, in the sense that we do find uh, more elasticity of response for those who have a low genetic predisposition, in this case, to drinking or for exercise. But the results are very noisy. It could be because of the data. It could be because maybe, you know, the identification is not so sharp for these particular behaviors. It could be, so our anecdotal evidence, uh, anecdotal ideas is that basically if you have a heart attack, the first thing that the doctor tells you is that you, you should stop smoking. Uh, anecdotally, the idea is that if you go into the emergency room and then they try to help you out and everything, and then they ask you the typical question, do you smoke? Are you overweight? And all of this type of stuff. If you respond that you're smoking, the first thing that they say is that you should really stop smoking because smoking is very bad for your health and for heart attack. Of course, exercise is, is very good for your health and for reducing the probability of heart attacks. And um, there is also some evidence of association with drinking. But those two behaviors probably are, they might be less prominent in the, in the mind of doctors and patients. And they also might be a bit uh, more uh, harder to change in terms of like ch changing your, when you're 63 or 67, changing your uh, exercise habits. It might be hard, although quitting smoking is also a pretty hard thing to do. We, we actually see in our data set that most people stop smoking 
So if we plot uh, over age, the share of people in our sample who report being smoking, uh, we see that it, it goes down, it declines for everyone, both those who have a high genetic predisposition and those who have a low genetic predisposition, they both reduce their level of smoking over time. But yeah, I mean, we looked at other behaviors, but we weren't able to really disentangle the noise from, uh, from the signal. So we already hear that the research is quite a process. <clears throat> and I was wondering <laughs> about your process. Where did the project start and where did you get the idea from? So the project started with, uh, uh, with Laura. So she started working with me as a research assistant. And uh, she was also finishing her master's, her master's studies. Well, actually, technically, she started the first year of a PhD. And then uh, she decided that uh, she smartly decided that, uh, you know, there's a life outside of academia. And she wanted to live that life instead, uh, <laughs> instead of the academia one. And so she decided not to continue her PhD. And she, she had to do a, a master thesis in order to finish and get a degree. And basically, we started working together. And uh, this was her master thesis. So I kind of pushed her towards understanding a bit more about genetics and this idea of social science genomics. And discussing with her, uh, we talked about the idea of, of smoking and health insurance. So initially, what we wanted to do was to try to see whether there was a differential response to smoking cessation uh, programs, which were implemented by Obamacare. Well, not necessarily implemented by Obamacare, but the Affordable Care Act or the CARE Act or Obamacare. So the idea that health insurance was becoming more commonly available in the US, basically. One of the many things that they tried to do is that they, they, they took the deductibles away from smoking cessation programs. So smoking cessation programs were now covered by health insurance, were actually incentivized by your health insurance policy, by many health insurance policy. So we wanted to understand whether the smoking cessation programs were effective to begin with and whether there was this type of uh, degree of genetic variation in response to the smoking cessation programs. But that turned out to be ex extremely hard to, to get it. Like the details of the law and the intricacies of the law were, didn't quite allow us to get a decent identification, basically. It was very hard to understand if the people in our data sets, the health retirement study, actually had access to this type of discounts for uh, the smoking cessation programs. So we kind of diverted away from the smoking cessation, but reading in this literature, Laura found out about this idea of a moral hazard and this idea of a response to a shock when covered or not covered by health insurance. And so we started with smoking and with the idea of differential response to treatments for smoking or some form of exogenous shock to the incentive to smoke. And we moved from uh, smoking cessation programs to uh, response to health shocks because the literature kind of pointed in that direction. So it was kind of a process that went back and forth between me and her, but she was really the main driver of this because she wanted to do her thesis with this. So it was mostly kind of uh, giving her some advice on, on where to go. And then, you know, the more she talked to me about it, the more I got excited. And of course, the general topic was something that was uh, in my initial interest to begin with. I was the one who kind of pointed in that direction. And Laura is a fantastic, well, she's not a researcher uh, now, but she was a fantastic researcher. She's a, an extremely skilled and uh, knowledgeable person, very attentive to detail and um, anything that she would, she would provide me, I would trust uh, basically 100%. And so 
it really developed a bit more into not more a master thesis, but really a full project. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the genesis of the of the paper. Very nice. Would you say that the co-authorship with Laura is very common for you? And how do you pick your co-authors in general? What attributes do you look for? Well, from the way you asked the question, it seems more of a carefully planned process rather than the rather chaotic process that happens to me when I'm looking for co-authors. But usually what happens is that I start talking to people about ideas or research or what I'm doing, what they are doing, what I think could be an interesting thing to do. And then oftentimes you find uh, intersections of, uh, of ideas or questions that are interesting for both, uh, for both people. And then I start, uh, usually you test the waters and try to see whether there's there's the possibility of having some form of identification or the data is there and all that type of stuff. And if there is a positive feedback from the these initial things, then usually I, we start, I try to start uh, a collaboration. But it, it's not really carefully planned or very neatly organized, I have to say. But in terms of qualities that I don't necessarily look for them, but it's uh, something that really tells me I should go ahead and keep doing this. I think there are two things that are important. The first one for me is complementarity of skills. So if there's someone else who's uh, who has very, very similar skills to what I have, then it seems to me that it's not necessarily fruitful or productive to try to work together. Because I like to learn from my co-authors mostly. I like to understand how they think and how they, you know, they have a different view and a different perspective on the literature and on the questions usually. And so learning from them allows me to get a better understanding of how to tackle questions. So uh, having someone who's uh, who has a different approach uh, is usually something that I, that I, I value and appreciate in, uh, in co-authorships. Uh, sometimes I went a bit too far. And so <laughs> there are some papers of mine where there are people who have a very, very different background. And so, you know, especially in interdisciplinary research, sometimes what happens is that you have to invest a lot of time in understanding each other's language. Not often, I mean, we're all speaking English most of the time, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily using the terminology in the same way. And we're not using the same, um, we don't have the same idea about how to answer questions so a lot of the time not a lot of the time but in the beginning you have to invest in this relationship in this uh, co-authorship and you have to invest in understanding each other and what each other what what you mean when you say fixed effect for example which is a terrible term that economists and other people use in different ways so you gotta you have to build this type of relationship makes sense and And I think that brings me to the second thing that I think it's important in co-authorship. I mean, maybe this is only me, but I think it's important to have, have, it's a relationship. And so you need to have some form of of empathy and some form of uh, feeling on the same wave as your co-author. It's a very vague and imprecise concept, but I do believe that it's important to be well with your co-author. It is something in between uh, a colleague, uh, a friendship, and sometimes, you know, living together. (laughs) You're not actually living together, but you're spending a lot of time together. (laughs) So if you realize that you don't necessarily, you get on each other's nerves, usually it makes for an unpleasant paper writing process. So you're already hinting that writing a paper can be a very lengthy process. So from start <laughs> to finish, so from when you first got the idea to, to f- producing your first draft, how long did you take and um, did you encounter any unexpected hurdles? 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very long process, and it's uh, it's it could be infinite in the sense that eventually you publish the paper. But of course, I doubt that any paper ever reach reaches a, a maximum. Oftentimes, you just say, "Look, the marginal increment that I could do by going in this direction is not is going to take is is not worth the the investment." And it's probably better to just try to take a step back and try to answer the same question if you are interested in the question from a different angle, from a different perspective. It's a better use of uh, anyone's time, probably. But yeah, so it, it takes a long time. And um, thanks for giving me the questions because I wouldn't have been able to answer this question on the spot. I looked it up <laughs> and we started discussing with Laura about this at, towards the end of 2017. And uh, so she started writing her master thesis and she turned in the master thesis at the uh, uh, May or June 2018. So I would say that that uh, was certainly the first draft. So that was quick in some sense because the master thesis could only last for six months. But, you know, it took us another six months or another year, I would say, to have a draft that I started circulating to conferences and then presentations. And then I think that the first working paper was published maybe a, a few months ago. So I would say in total, it's more than two years that more than two or three years that we, we've been working on this. And this was a quick paper. <laughs> there's, uh, there's much, much longer papers. But of course, it's not finished. We, we just got our a nice round of rejections. And uh, so I cannot say how long it's going to last. I don't even know if we are past the 50% mark in the time that it's going to take us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you use a lot of DNA data, which is known to be very rich. Do you think that the vastness of the data also shaped your research approach and the process? Maybe it takes a bit longer because of all the data richness. Yeah, so it is quite big in the sense that you, um, in the raw data, you end up having for each individual, you have about 10 million genetic variants or so, not necessarily like it's a ballpark, ballpark number. But so it's very, very rich, but we were lucky enough to basically outsource the problem of data reduction to the field of uh, behavioral genetics. So behavioral geneticists have come up uh, with a way of reducing the dimensionality of, of the genetic data by looking at this uh, so-called polygenic scores, which are just a summary index of, uh, you could call it a, an index of genetic predisposition for a certain trait, for a certain outcome. And uh, the field of, of genomics has, has been debating how to, best, how to do this uh, for a long time. The first approach that the first genome-wide association study, the first GWAS that tried to link genetic variants with outcomes is from around 2005. And the idea of constructing an index or a score is more from uh, like the early 2010s. So there's been a lot of discussion internally to the field about how to reduce the dimensionality of the data. And in this particular paper, uh, Laura and I don't try to innovate in this front. We just take the what is the standard in, in the literature, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is a bit daunting to have in front of you this many, <laughs> this richness of data. And especially trying to narrow down the way that you can use this data to, to answer the question in some sense. So we take the simpler approach of constructing an index for each individual. So a unit dimensional index of uh, propensity to smoking. And we decide to do this because our main outcome is smoking. And so we think that it's reasonable, at least in, in the first step, to say, if you are interested in smoking, then you should reduce the dimensionality of the genetic data in a way that focuses on smoking and construct an index of, uh, of propensity to smoke, this so-called polygenic scores. Mm -hmm. 
If I don't have any indices available, do you have any general tips for working with big data? Well, so in a situation of genetics, the interesting thing and the useful thing, I think, is that there's a lot of people who have worked on it. And so there's a lot of expertise, a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, current current debate in the literature that you can uh, you can help, uh, you can use to understand what you're doing, and you can maybe contribute to in some sense. And so I think that genetics is a specific case of big data where there's a, a big discussion not only within the the co-authors but within the field itself about how to use the data. That discussion is not settled. And that's why I think it's interesting to keep your toe into it. Mm -hmm. And so as you were saying, if there's no uh, way of constructing an index, then um, you really have to think a bit harder how to reduce the dimensionality of, of the data. So what people have done in, ge in genetics, at least, is that people have started to use new tools using, for example, factor models or factor analysis to try to construct different, different proxies of uh, genetic predisposition. This is called genomic SEM, genomic structural equation modeling. But more generally, when you're using big data, I think that the, the complicated thing is to keep the perspective big enough to be able to answer your question. So basically, don't lose sight of the forest because of the trees. You need to find a way to reduce the dimensionality of your data. Usually you can use machine learning. You can use a lot of uh, new methods and tools. There's new tools and methods that are developed <laughs> at the speed of light, it seems. So every day there's a new method that you can use. But I think that the general idea is that you should really, if you are an applied researcher who, are, who is interested in answering the applied question rather than contributing to the methodology itself, then I think that you should try to really think about what you need, what you want, and either find an available tool that gives you a good proxy of what you have and what you want, or maybe start partnering with someone who's uh, more into the methods, if you're not a methods a person yourself and uh, try to develop the tool that reduces the dimensionality of the, that is more appropriate for your particular job. So I think those are the two things that you can do. But more generally, the things that I wish someone would have told me basically are uh, two. So the first one is that you have to set up an infrastructure that makes it clear that you have the, all of the ethical and the practical ways of accessing the data. Genetic data is very sensitive data, very, very private data. And so correctly so, a lot of money has gone into collecting this data and processing the data and other researchers have done it, or at least that's always the case. Uh, that's uh, almost always what happened to me. And in order for that to happen, you have to buy the trust of the respondents and be sure that they know that uh, their information is going to be kept secure, it's going to be kept safe. Social science genomics and uh, uh, genomics in general decided to try to open up the access to this data. But in order to do that, you need to be sure that you're respecting the ethical and the privacy guidelines that the, that the data provider gives. And in order to do that, usually you need to have a decent infrastructure in your, in your university. Most universities have it, so it's really not a problem but not all economics departments have it. So usually you need a cluster computer, you need a, a safe room or a safe uh, storage space where to keep the data and you need to be sure that nobody else has access to it and that you have, uh, you have set up all of the security in such a way that you're respecting the trust that the respondents have given to the researchers. Mm -hmm. And this also comes with uh, some perks because once you have a cluster, then you can also access and uh, analyze the data 
in a much better way. So besides trying to understand how to physically do it, the other thing that I would suggest people is to learn how to interact with the remote server, basically. Learn a bit of Unix, learn a bit of commands that allow you to basically ship the job to a remote server that done, does all of the computing for you. Most of the time, uh, your laptop or your desktop is not going to be able to run everything that uh, you need to do. So it's going to either slow you down significantly or just uh, crash. And so it's better to set up everything in such a way that it's ethically above the bar and correct. And it's also helping you computationally. Mm, these are some very good tips for, for data handling. Did you encounter any other challenges in this research process? And how do you generally approach these challenges? Specifically for this paper and for the topic in general, we often encounter skepticism by the profession. So correctly so. I think that social scientists are um, either consciously or unconsciously well aware of the terrible history that social science and genetics has. At the beginning of the last century, not only in Germany, but in Europe in general, social scientists have started to think about genetics in a way that really led them astray. And the whole eugenics movement was a clear and huge humongous failure of the social sciences to try to understand and contribute to genetics and genomics. And so this humongous failure that spilled over outside of academia and had terrible negative consequences for the lives of, uh, of millions of people uh, was something that correctly so halted the progress and uh, made a lot of social science skeptical about this. And so what I think it's important and that I think what uh, social science genomics is currently doing is to really take the approach in a more inclusive, more uh, incremental and, and, and skeptical way. So we need to be very clear about what we want to do, why we want to do it, and why this could be helpful, not only for us as researchers, but especially for the community at large. And I think that in this regard, one thing that I would suggest everyone to read is the new book by Kate Page Harden that is called The Genetic Lottery that really talks in details about these questions and these, um, these ideas. And so what we ended up facing was a lot of skepticism from the profession that probably correctly initially thought that economists should not touch genetics with a 10-foot pole, that we should really stay away from this because we made a lot of mistakes in the past. And so I think that one way that we tried to approach this was to be very clear, very open, and very rigorous in the way that we do our research. So really try to be extremely honest and clear about what are our questions, why our questions are important, and why what we do could be helpful, uh, not only to us as researchers, but to the community in general. And so I think that haunting past was actually helped us and pushed us to become more aware of what our research can contribute in some sense. In fact, your paper gives very strong policy advice concerning the fairness of health policies. So do you think that in general, policy advice should be based on behavioral science and also should it incorporate genetic information more systematically? I'm pretty sure that I don't say that government policies should be based on, on genetics. If I ever said that in my, in my paper, please let me know, because I really, really never, ever meant to say that. But I do believe that there is something that can be useful for policy in general uh, when looking at genetics. And the important thing, I think, is that basically 
genetics is a way of understanding inequality that is deep-seated in our at the beginning of our lives. So I think that genetic variants are a nice, careful way of measuring differences across people. And when you talk about differences, you are in some sense talking about inequality. Inequality has something to do with differences across people. So if you have a measure of inequality at conception, then you can probably use that measure of inequality at conception to understand how the social environment and the public policies that we implement are actually building on this initial inequality. And the important thing, I think, is to understand whether these policies are exacerbating the inequalities that we're born with or they're actually trying to reduce them. So I think that the genetics can be used as kind of a benchmark to compare different types of policies, not necessarily to understand one single policy, but to compare different types of policies and say, which of the policies that we are currently implementing in our system, in our society, which of these are actually helping reduce the differences that we see at birth and which ones are actually exacerbating these differences. And then we can have uh, a more knowledgeable discussion about whether and if and how we want to reduce or exacerbate the differences that we see. Is it good for, is it better to try to have a sorting of people based on their, on their genetic predisposition? Or is it actually better to try to have a more equal distribution of outcomes? All of this, of course, has to speak with a much, much greater discussion about equality of opportunity. And in the discussion of equality of opportunity, a lot of uh, philosophers and social scientists have, this, have thought about the idea of the difference between the things that you do and you decide yourself and the things that are just predetermined and given to you. And usually people consider the things that are predetermined and given to you as an unfair source of inequality. And so many people in the social science genetics that I know consider differences in genetic variants and differences in, uh, in genetic endowments as a form of unfair source of inequality. And so I think it's through this lens that we can help uh, public policy. And, but more generally, you also asked me whether public policy should be guided by behavioral research. Behavioral research can be very helpful for policymakers to understand the hidden consequences of their policies. Oftentimes, a politician or a policymaker tries to achieve a particular objective, and they implement a policy that is a way of achieving that objective. Now, to understand whether their goal and their actual policy are uh, aligned, then usually you need a form of uh, behavioral uh, uh, evaluation of this type of policy. Understand what are the primary consequences, but also the secondary consequences of the policies that you're implementing and understanding how people react to the policy itself and maybe react to the changes that the policy is implementing. So to understand the forced order and the second order effects of policies. I think it's very important for policymakers to at least know whether this is happening or not and how this is happening. So I truly believe that there is something that we can contribute to the public debate, but it is politicians and the society at large that eventually has to decide what they want to do for themselves. So I think we can just provide a few more uh, bullet points, so to speak, according to which people can choose different types of policies or different approaches. So you seem naturally very passionate about this topic. And I was wondering, okay. what inspired you to research at the interplay of biological and environmental factors in human decision making? Because for me, what I've seen so far, it's not a very common field, but I think it's very interesting. And I was just wondering how you started this research agenda. 
practically it started by almost by accident as many other things happen so i was working for my second year paper in the phd i was working with a data set that had a lot of information it was the alspec data the even longitudinal study of parents and children which is a study of uh, uh, children who were born around the 1990s the early 1990s in a in a region near bristol even is a region near bristol and it, they, it follows these children over time and they ask a ton of questions to the mother to the children to the father and i remember i was working with that uh, with that data mostly to understand human capital information and uh, once i had a a meeting with my advisor and he started asking me and pushing me what were the other things that were the other variables that were present in the data set like what how i could make my model richer basically and i started i i was prepared i read all of the questions that were asked to the, to the parents and the children and so i started saying they ask this they ask that i don't use this i don't use that because i don't think it's uh, too important and so on and so forth and then eventually just said yeah and they also have genetics but you know i don't really know how to use it and my advisor stopped and said ah okay that's super interesting you have to do that and I said how and he just basically said well that's your uh, that eventually became my job market paper but more generally I think that the accident just you know was a seed that was thrown on a fertile field I've always seen economics as extremely interesting but a bit dry and abstract there's one representative person one representative agent for the whole economy but of course we are very different from each other and this type of difference this time of uh, inequality this type of heterogeneity it's something that always interested me the biological aspects was something that we used to talk about at home because my dad is a, is a doctor my brother is a doctor now not uh, not back uh, back in the old days but it was always something that I was uh, kind of exposed to when when growing up and i felt that this distinction from a representative uh, hyper rational agent it did, didn't really necessarily bind very well with the many differences in thought processes in ideas in gut feelings in perceptions and behaviors and in expectations that i saw in the people around me and i think that genetics was one way of trying to get at that one way of trying to understand how the differences in people might influence the different way that they make decision the different way that they respond to shocks and they respond to incentive the different ways that basically their lives evolve over time and i think kind of anyone can tell a personal story about this so here comes mine <laughs> like i i was looking at my families and uh, my mother family was my from my mother's side they were farmers in the northern part of italy and from my father's side my grandfather was uh, an engineer so they were a bit more uh, more wealthy more uh, you know had uh, higher ses my mom and my dad had three children and all the three children are quite different from each other and they have different tastes different preferences different ideas so we had the same genetic pool we had the same environment and we still have uh, we're all we're slightly different from each other but more even more so i think that my cousins are the one that are very different from each other from my mother's side and from my father's side they might have similar skills but they ended up in a completely different situation they ended up making completely different choices and from the perspective of a an econometrician or a statistician they're in very different socioeconomic strata that's always something i was wondering i mean how is it possible that they are so similar to me at least but they ended up being so different it's a super interesting field and i was wondering where do you see the field developing in the future So I think there are two ways that basically the field could develop. So from the narrow perspective of economics, 
narrow in the sense that social science genomics is more than only economics. But from the perspective of economics, what I hope that we can bring to the field is exactly this understanding of how the standard models of economics, of maximization, of agents that choose different bundles, different goods, different choice, different education paths, can be informed by this heterogeneity and by this genetic diversity. So try to understand how diversity at the beginning of life is important to understand diversity later in life. And especially, I personally hope that one thing that can happen is that we use this uh, heterogeneity that is biologically founded to micro-found the models that we have. And so that we really have a, a thoughtful discussion about how we can allow and introduce heterogeneity in our models in a way that is not just a post hoc or statistically sound in the sense that we have some form of some distribution that falls on the sky and has, uh, you know, and is embedded into the error term, but actually try to understand which parameters are different and how they're different across people and why they're different. Like what are the bases of these differences? So I think that's one of the things that can be done, hopefully, by by social science genomics uh, within economics. And I think more generally, the taking a perspective of the social sciences, I hope that more and more people are going to dip their toe and try to understand this idea of uh, genetic variants. I am fairly certain that discussions, uh, measures, and understanding of genetic variants and genes in general is here to stay. It's not just a phase that has happened. We started sequencing the human genome in 2001 or 2003, depending on whether you look at the actual publication date or not. And we're 20 years on, and still we have a lot of heated debates, a lot of things that we can learn. And geneticists have been, of course, thinking about it very, very hard, but they came to, they, they brought some tools to the table that are now ready to be picked up by anyone who's interested in social science questions. And so I hope that in general, more and more people are gonna start integrating this information about genetic diversity into their research, in their applied research, and maybe also in their theoretical research. That's very interesting. I was also wondering, since the data are so sensitive because they are very personal, do you think that the sensitivity of this data will actually impact the future of this research area? Each person is now producing a lot of uh, uh, data that uh, different companies and different researchers are collecting and are storing. And the way that we collect them, the way that we store them, the way that we use them, it's a big discussion that we need to have as uh, as a field and uh, more generally within the policy framework and uh, in a privacy framework. Given the sensitivity of genetic data that don't only have to do something with you, but also with all of your ancestry, and all of your siblings and relatives, then we need to be extra careful when we're talking about genetic variants. Because again, when uh, I sequence my genome and I get information about my own genome, I'm actually getting information about the genome of all of my ancestors and a pretty good guess about what is the genome of my brother and my sister. And they didn't necessarily agree to the personal choice that I had of sequencing my genome. So we've actually arrived at the end of this interview, at the last part. And in the end, we usually ask a few more questions about your work environment and how you conduct research in general. So in that sense, how do you find the time to manage all your research, teaching and supervising commitments? 
Yeah, so the, the honest answer is that I'm terrible at it. I'm very, very bad. <laughs> I, I think all of my co-authors uh, hate me now because I've been behind on many, many things. But so the short of it is that I'm, I'm not good at managing these uh, at time management. And it's something that I wish I would be better at. I wish, you know, maybe we should try to have more systematic teaching about how to better manage our time, which ends up being one of the most valuable things that we can do. So with all your obligations and when time is also scarce, how do you manage to maintain your creativity and also your motivation during a research process? Yeah, the motivation is hard in the sense that there's always a, a personally I have long-term motivation about trying to answer questions that I've been grappling with for a long time. And those questions don't go away. I don't have an answer for them yet. And they always evolve and it becomes a new, more sharp question or a more general question. So those things are just something that are personally and I'm personally interested in. And I find them in the everyday life when I interact with my children, when I talk to my siblings, where when we discuss with our researchers, those type of questions always come up, at least in the back of my mind. And so the motivation comes from this interest that I see kind of uh, around me. But the day-to-day -day motivation and the motivation to spend the necessary additional time in curating the third paragraph of the introduction or, you know, doing the final robustness check that never ends up giving you the results that you expected, those are very hard to, very hard to do. And I sadly work by deadlines. So the few days before a deadline, I start trying to find answer to those questions and push the things that I, that I need to push. But it's, uh, again, I'm not, it's not something I would suggest anyone to do. In that sense, if you had to give a single piece of advice to a young researcher, what would that be? And especially if that young researcher was entering the career and trying to write a publishable paper. There's a lot of very interesting and very good general suggestions that are out there. So I think I'm going to focus on one thing that I personally believe has not been considered enough, or at least uh, not as of yet, which is uh, take care of your mental health. I think that one important thing that every researcher needs to realize and understand is that mental health is, is true. It's there. It exists. It's just like physical health. And we need to take care of it because it's probably one of the most important tools that we have. Our skills and our intellect and our capacity is uh, one of the things that we use the most as researchers and as, uh, as academic. I cannot do, I can do very, very few concrete things. And if your trade is to think, then you need to be able to take care of the main tools that allow you to achieve that. And one of the main tools, I think, is your mental health. If you're an athlete and you break your leg or you have even just, you know, a scratch on your third finger on the toe, you go directly to the doctor and you try to ask them, what should I do? How can I fix it? How can I not fix it? You know, how can I make it heal? How can I make it such that uh, it will uh, help me and support me in, in my running? We don't necessarily do that when it comes to our mental health. We often try to push it down, push it away, push it to the future or to the past or in a, in a dark corner. And I strongly believe that we should take care of our mental health much, much better than what we do. And just as uh, many athletes take, take care of their physical health. This is a very strong piece of advice. Thank you. Do you have anything else that you would like to say? 
I would like to just thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's very important, useful for, for young researchers to understand how the sausage is made. And I hope that my little piece of advice can give a, a new anecdote to people who are trying to struggling through their research. So thanks a lot for, for having you here. It was a true pleasure. And thanks a lot for your time. It was really great to learn about social science genomics and how biological and environmental factors play together and shape our decision making. I definitely learned a lot today. And thank you so much for joining us at the BS Uncovered podcast today. Thank you.